we are here today to talk about um, a movie called 40 Guns, which was written and directed by Samuel Fuller. <laughs> You uh, had not seen this movie. Nope. We were talking about different kinds of movies we could do, and when you'd suggested doing a Western, it was really my choice that rather than going for something obvious like a John Ford movie or Howard Hawks or any of the sort of classic, iconic American Westerns, I chose uh, this truly unusual movie. And so for anybody who's listening who isn't familiar with it, I'll tell you first uh, a little bit about Sam Fuller, uh, who was um, sort of like, we talked about Robert Altman last time. Uh, it, Sam Fuller is one of those people who's kind of a legendary iconoclast. He's a patron saint of contemporary independent filmmakers because not only of the way that he kept an independent uh, or just an original authorial voice in his filmmaking for the studios, he also financed movies independently if the studios didn't want to do them. So he's somebody who sort of wrote his own ticket and became a favorite of film critics because he's somebody that you could look of, look at as a creative person who gets all the creative credit for the film. 40 Guns, which was made in 1957, is a Western about a guy named Griff, who is a retired gunslinger, is a lawman, uh, who is traveling with his two brothers to arrest somebody in a town that is run sort of by a vision-impaired marshal, but it's really run with an iron fist by a woman named Jessica Drummond, who has uh, a small army of 40 gunslingers, hence the title. And um, she has her brother to protect, and he has his two brothers to protect. They fall for each other, uh, and then after her brother kills his brother, um, he ends up taking his revenge and killing the guy by shooting through the woman he's fallen for. So uh, the hero, Griff, who's played by Barry Sullivan, ends up shooting uh, Jessica Drummond, played by Barbara Stanwyck. He shoots her in the leg so that he can kill the guy he really wants to. And at the end of the movie, uh, she lives and comes running after him. And it's, uh, that's an unusual plot. But that doesn't really convey what makes the movie so specifically interesting. But Jonathan, I, I think I had fun picking this movie because I knew you hadn't seen it. Why don't you tell me what you thought of it or what your reactions were to it? Well, I liked some of it. And some of it just seemed to me like a paper-thin comic book, like this sort of, you know, some kind of path from the time period. I mean, I, I was... I, I couldn't believe the job that it did on women altogether, starting from minute one. I was like, well, thank God we don't deal with anything that way anymore. It's pretty grotesque, but uh, that was kind of uh, weird. Um, Could you be more specific? I mean, they're literally just object. I could read you the lyrics to the main song, which are, which are. Uh, uh, let's let's start. Here's let's go with the lyrics here. High ride and woman is the is was the hit for the movie. Uh, you know, composed by Harry Suckman, who was the guy who orchestrated and also conducted all the music in the film. It goes. She's a high ride and woman with a whip. 
She's a woman that all men desire, but there's no man can tame her. That's why they name her the high riding woman with the whip. All right, so now you think, from the modern perspective, you think, wow, it's going to get kinky. But no, so, uh, she commands and men obey. They're just putty in her hands, so they say. When she rides and the wind is in her hair, she has eyes full of life, full of fire. But if someone could break her and take her whip away, someone big, someone strong, someone tall, you may find that the woman with a whip is only a woman after all. But if someone could break her and take her whip away, someone big, someone strong, someone tall, you may find that the woman with a whip is only a woman after all. Only a woman after all. Only a woman after all. There you go. Yes, those are the lyrics to that song. <laughs> so it's one of those movies that because it's got a powerful woman at its center that you're not sure, wait a second, is this some sort of female empowerment story? Or, in fact, it's a story about a woman who dresses in all black and rides a horse uh, who ends up at the end of the movie in a white dress running after the dude. And so it's all about the guy who ends up uh, sort of conquering the woman. So you're right, the gender politics are... Uh, dated to say the least, but I also don't think that they were, I don't think the film is inherently typical of its era. I think it's very specifically this dude's story to tell. Oh, I'm not sure about that. I think that there's plenty in there that, has, that reminds you of maybe, of, it's not typical of its era in a western maybe, but it's typical of its era altogether because what you have is coming off of the war, you have more independence of women because of the role that they played in, they played in the wars, and what you generally have in Hollywood movies is the look that they are in more control, that they have more stuff going on. But in almost all the plots, what happens is that there's some chaos, their stuff is going to fall apart. As a result of their independence, everything is going to go wrong, and then they have to be controlled and, sub and subjugated back into the position of walking around in white dresses and so, tattling the men before, before the, chaos is averted. The other important thing to say about Samuel Fuller is that he's a World War II combat veteran. Um, there happens to be just, uh, there's a great book called Five Came Back that was made in a documentary about Hollywood directors who fought in World War II and how their work changed after the war versus before the war, mm -hmm. all big studio directors. And Sam Fuller was not only a combat veteran, he stormed Omaha Beach on D-Day and was the only filmmaker to actually restage it. He made a movie called The Big Red One in which he was based on his own experiences in the war. The climax of 40 Guns, where the guy shoots the woman in order to shoot the guy, like he shoots the woman he loves, wounding her in order to kill the guy. Interesting. Was based on something, his experience in the war. Oh, yeah? So uh, this was a movie that he made. Uh, I'm not saying that there, th there aren't things about it. There are, you know, it's a Western. It was built. It, it, it wasn't the biggest budget movie because, of course, Western towns existed on the Fox backlot, and so it was not. It was they were they made a lot of stories like this, and uh, but I do think Sam Fuller, who later in his life wrote an autobiography called The Third Face uh, about his own filmmaking career, is some filmmakers don't want to talk about their movies and like what I intended and what you should interpret from it. Like I just make them and you think about it. I'm not a scholar. I'm an artist, um, but. Uh, Sam Fuller was very cognizant of the way people would interpret his films and was also very uh, happy to talk about what his films were about. <laughs> so he's someone who um, I think intended people to interpret his films politically. He thought it was a movie that was really about guns. Um, yeah. And he actually, um, the, ch uh, the chapter in his book, I think, uh, on 40 Guns is called um, A Movie Full of Phalluses. 
because it's a movie that's really about a woman who has a um, he harem of 40 men who do her bidding. <laughs> and what happens when one strong man comes and takes her on and attempts to take the place of 40 other men. And so he was... Um, they just automatically get up off the table and go in the other room. Right, they're, 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 they're gonna the most, go, that was the most incredible scene. They're, 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 they're going to go. He comes in. She says, "Leave us alone." And the forty guys all get up and yeah. walk. In. We'll polish <laughs> our gun barrels. Yeah, I mean, there's something you, astonishing is a word that you can use about forty guns because it is so. Um, I, I kind of want to say cheeky in its, uh, you know, um, use of guns and masculinity in a way that really encourages a, let's call it a Freudian interpretation about how he doesn't want her to touch his gun because it's gonna go off in her face, that she's like, okay, I'm with, I'm, I, I can handle the risk. And you know, there's the story of, a man meets a woman and flirts with her uh, at the gunsmith. There, you know. Oh, that that exchange. I was going to ask you about the the, the exchange at the gunsmith. Yeah. Well, no, I'm talking about the, when when they're going to kiss for the first time. Right. Let's talk about that piece of dialogue because you write dialogue, okay. and exactly how corny that is, which just flipped me out. I was like amazed. Like, uh, why do you did you have some of the dialogue written down there? I actually did. I All couldn't right, help it. I did. Let's hear it. Uh. Well, let's. Look at this. Following the first showdown, remember there's the first set of stuff that goes on. The first time that, that, that he has to go and he picks up the drunk guy, sticks him in a wheelbarrow, you know, this old drama at the beginning. Uh, where it has the guys sitting around after that, and, and his first line is, I'd like to stick around long enough to clean her rifle. Yeah. That's the first line. Okay. Right? <laughs> right immediately after that. Okay. And then the next thing turns out to be okay, then they did see where is it? Because I wrote this stuff down. Let me see what I was going through here. It's great. He says, I never kissed a gunsmith before. Any recoil? She asks. Oh yeah. <laughs> this movie's got a million of them. Right? Um <laughs> Listen, uh, you know, just what do you would you really? I mean, you're 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 the writer. You tell me where you. Would, well, all right. Is we're not even getting into the part about how Stanwick uh, <laughs> disciplines her uh, maverick brother for um, chasing around women, but who she refers to, I think, as unbranded calves. Yeah, right. right? So, <laughs> you know, so um, there's uh, he never saw a metaphor he didn't want to mess with. So, see, another thing to know about Sam Fuller, who really had one of the most amazing lives of any filmmaker of the 20th century, was that he started as a paper boy. And not a, I don't mean a delivery boy, I mean he's the guy on the corner as a child who used to sell the papers. Like uh -huh. extra, extra read all about it. Right. He, uh, he became a crime reporter at the age of 17. Uh. So he had, he, I mean, he was on murder sites. He had a real tendency towards the lurid, mm -hmm. the underworld. Um, and so I think he knew what sold. So this is a movie, you know, that he's a guy who, you know, worked in journalism, then wrote pulp fiction. He wrote crime books. And then ended up, after having had one of his books, uh, he became a screenwriter after having one of his books sort of... Uh, Directed poorly in his in his in his idea, he wanted to direct the films himself because he thought he had a, a handle on it, and he ended up 
really hitting it off with, of all people, Daryl Zanuck, who ran Fox. So he became a studio director, and he did studio movies and his own movies. But I think he was really, really interested. Like, he he made movies that really worked at a gut level. Like, it's, it's really... Um, the comedy, the drama, it's all really broad. I mean, for, like, 40 guns? Like, I can't imagine that somebody wouldn't say, like, could it be 20 guns? <laughs> you know, this movie is... Uh, well, it sounds like 40 Thieves. I mean, you can yeah, say they, the get to make the four, they get to right. make the 40 Thieves. But I'm just saying, like, there's a movie... That, the, uh, another astonishing thing about this movie is that apparently it was shot in a little more than a week. So you're like, wait, huh? So the town existed, but they had to build, I think, a track, like we're talking about the, the dolly track that you yeah. put the moving camera on, that was about 1,000 feet long, because there's 40 guns, because they had to have 40 dudes on horses. Dude. Everything, yeah. like, we need to have a dinner scene. Well, there has to be a table for 40 dudes. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> so, um, so the, you know, it's like... The, they had some. Well, the actually, movie starts with all those dudes taking baths together. An unbelievable <laughs> scene. Uh, it, the, the baths happened twice, and and yeah. then let's go. Let's go into. And we, Why wasn't get, anybody making questions about those dudes taking baths? They obviously would go to town. And not say, only that, Where can I get a bath? No, and Ginge Carroll, who sings both of the songs, yeah. is, is singing the song to them while they're in the bath. Yeah. He comes coming up with more hot water and a song and you know yeah. and he's got his song about her which then he announces is the song about her early she's in the movie she's a high riding woman with a whip she's a woman that all men desire but there's no man can tame her that's why they name her the high-riding woman with a whip. But, you know, I tell you what, there was, a, I didn't, there was things, there's a lot of things in the movie about the movie I like, but one of the things is actually, it's funny you bring that up, because there is a couple of interesting photography things uh, relative to stuff at the, of course. the time then that, that, that happened. Uh, and one is, he has a hell of a lot of shots that are above and below the action that happen a lot, so that it's not, not across the center of the action. They cut... They cut in between, and they're they're pretty interesting if you look at them. And it starts right away early on. They have these shooting. The first appearance of the forty guns and her is 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 them on a stagecoach, and which there's a montage that keeps going from the bottom, underneath the stagecoach to on top, and so clear. And they're doing a lot of high shots, downward high, downward shots, and back and forth. And I thought that was interesting. I thought the photography was good. That photography thing was pretty interesting for a Western at the time. Absolutely. He directed a movie that he, he was always known for putting his camera in unusual places yeah, that other sure. people wouldn't think to do yeah. or couldn't do. Yeah. You know, that tracking shot I mentioned was something that's... Uh, Beyond conventional wisdom, nobody would spend that much energy doing a tracking shot, and the camera operator who did it was, you know, inches away from all these hooves, and so he got a shot that nobody would get. But I know you love the long single shot because I've seen one of your films where you had the long single shot, and you know, and um, don't let me start about the weekend yet because we'll get to that eventually. But you can. Uh, <laughs> are you talking? Are you talking about weekend? You mean Godard? Yeah, the Godard. So Godard, of course, was a fan of this movie absolutely because the. Most notorious shot of the movie is the gun barrel angle, which yes, which is basically where um, 
going Griff's with. brother, uh, you know, has a thing for the gunsmith, the gunsmith's daughter, uh, and then ends up pointing a gun at her, and then the camera appears miraculously inside the gun barrel, in which she's sort of irised in the middle, where you can just see her face. And so this Incredible was um, uh, homage-style referenced in Breathless, and, you know, could also be said to predate the James, James Bond, Bond thing. And actually, th yeah. that was an incredible thing because you know what? I never put it together in my head. Yeah. Somehow, in all the years of watching James Bond, that what you were looking at there is looking down a gun barrel. Not once. I never put it together yeah. until that moment. That well, that's why he's shooting back. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> the, uh, so Fuller um, was uh, could also be said to be highly influential on Sergio Leone. Right? right, Sergio Leone, okay, uh, who gets a lot of credit for his extreme close-ups and his unusual angles. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of that can be said to come from, um, I mean, Fuller made 40 guns, but he also made uh, The Baron of Arizona, which is an astonishing mm -hmm. Western. Mm -hmm. uh, I guess that's the word of the day. He also with, it was starring um, Vincent Price. There's a his astonishing first uh, The movie. perfect guy in the movies in that period. Is right? I Shot Jesse James is another one. Yeah. So he made a... He, he, he took to westerns as he did to war movies, as he did to crime pictures. Um, but he was influential, obviously, on Quentin Tarantino. Uh, he particularly has an acolyte in Jim Jarmusch. Uh, Jim Jarmusch um, actually... What part of Jim? Oh, because of, because of the the Western thing that Jim Jarmusch did. Oh yeah, but you know, Amika Karismaki, who's a Finnish filmmaker, which made, I'm, a, I, I'm terrible because I, I'm not a fan of the, the, the that particular Jarmusch. Movie. Oh, of Dead Man. It's odd, you know. I you hate better to watch get out, it. man. You're gonna make me pick it. Oh, you can, you, you, you can go on. I'm a Jarmusch <laughs> fan, but yeah. I, that was it, it, so, that runs down the bottom of my favorites. Cause uh, I, I but you won't it. see the Jarmusch doesn't usually make movies that are. I mean. Uh, it, the other movies that Sam Fuller is also known for uh, these two movies Shock Harder and The Naked Kiss which are almost like exploitation films uh -huh. they're made in the 60s that are also you know kind of uh, balls out dialogue and a lot of characters looking directly at the camera which is very unnerving for the audience but I mention it because Mika Karzmaki who's a Finnish filmmaker yeah. made a documentary with Fuller and Jarmusch called Tigrero uh, I think it's called the film that was never made. But there's some film that Fuller wanted to make in South America that he never gotten a chance to do. And so he and Jim Jarmusch, they were friends, went to South America together to visit all the sets. And uh -huh. It's wow. this very sub-sub-genre wow. of documentary about a movie that didn't get made. I, uh -huh. could, I could give you a short list. Uh, so he, you can see his he was an inspiration to people because of his working methods. Uh -huh. He got a lot of stuff done. and. Um, he also had a great comeback. You know, he worked very steadily through the 40s, 50s, and even the 60s. In the 70s, he couldn't get arrested. He had a comeback with his autobiographical war from The Big Red One. He made a truly unusual film called White Dog about an African-American man who tries to retrain a racist attack dog. Uh -huh. That is like one of those movies where you're like, is this movie offensive or is this really... I mean, you look at something like 40 Guns and you're like, does this... Is it a feminist movie? Does it think it's a feminist movie? Or is this a truly offensive movie? I can't really tell. Yeah. And so there's something about it that sticks in the craw in a way that I think if we were here to talk about My Darling Clementine or something, I wouldn't. I just don't connect with it as much as a movie that's really outrageous and grabs your attention. So I like that it's uh, it really is a kind of 
burlesque, and I obviously mean that as a compliment. It has a real bump and grind for your attention. Yeah, well, it all moves. the dudes it's in the, like those songs. Those that guy is not only performing those songs in unusual places. He's like, there's the sort of funereal song that he sings later. Yeah, well, you know. That's like, he performs an acapella on camera, but there is musical accompaniment. So he's doing it straight up Oklahoma style. Yeah, but, you know, this is, this is the, 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 the schmaltz of this had come, had, had come around. Okay, it hadn't started that long before, but there's, you know, High Noon had shown up. And the movies had been suffering so heavily from TV at that point that all of a sudden, because there was the hit, which was Tex Ritter singing, you know, uh, uh, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. darling. And um, the thing about it is that they suddenly only, they were suddenly only interested in away from the picture money. They're like, we don't care, whatever, but we want, we need everything stuffed in there that, that will create money that happens away from the picture. And they really wanted that, and they suddenly started building recording studios to record their own stuff. So this, this is where you suddenly have them with recording studios and record companies was literally, before that they'd been giving away the public, they didn't care, they were letting other people handle the publishing and that. So now it became critical, the more critical than the continuity of the music, I mean, some writers have said it's the death of, of of interesting movie music, some people go that far, but, but essentially you had you could have this kind of preposterous disruption going on, which in a way is a ridiculous fantasy. I happen to like some of the stuff that happened in this movie. Let's look at this. The, the weird thing about High Noon creating that is that High Noon, well, in my opinion, it's a movie on a different level than this movie, but it's you know it's an incredible film. But the music, that particular music thing, happened to work. It's really just a matter of what how the studios respond to that afterwards. So by the time the Sam Fuller movie shows up, which is four or five years later, you can see they're like, great, two songs, and they advertise them at the beginning of the movie, and then you're going to have Jidge Carroll doing this absurd kind of you know suddenly the, the cowboy musical thing, which which of course. I, in a way, I love it. I mean, I think it's funny, you know, sort of pop cowboy song type stuff that, you know, I mean, this is a song that then starts to get covered by people like the Sons of the Pioneers and whatnot. Everybody, everybody gets into, you know, the doing the Western shtick and all that, you know, uh, you know what, what cowboys do. Of course, the ironies are funny. I mean, you know, the, 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 the high noon music was written by a Russian pianist who decided to turn into a film composer. It's a, it a Russian guy who wrote the, wrote, wrote, wrote the Tex Ritter number. So, you know, you can see where this, this racket's going after this, you know, you got to get it in there. But I got to say, again, in this film, there's a couple, you know, there's the, there's the, the sort of cliche type Western music, which is really there to, you can tell now, because they had to come up with a music that looks like it's going to be dramatic music, but really it has to be something that includes a way to deliver your pop theme. So they have to pop music now. So they're going to pop music. And even the orchestral music that would normally have been there beforehand to deliver all of the uses and clever and brilliant ways that you would use to either develop a plot, attach scenes together, uh, talk about, you know, deal with dialogue. I mean, it's massive, incredible creative stuff that had been going on before that now has to be packaged in such a way or repositioned in such a way that it's deli- simultaneously delivering the pop music. Now. In this particular case, though, he managed to get a couple of things in that I really liked. I mean, there was a couple of great music moves in there that I really liked. One was he goes to send the telegraph, and then he managed to translate the horse galloping music for the horses to come through town right after he sends the telegraph, comes off, comes immediately off of the rhythm of the telegraph, uh, uh, the telegraph sound of the telegraph tapping. 
very clever and really good and that was a, that was kind of a brilliant thing and the other funny thing and I always like this about stuff that has to do with western music okay he has a, he has a lot of stuff that you know you have to have a guitar in there as kind of a thing of course Sergio Leone does does uh, you know Marconi does uh, pull some stuff from this kind of thing but but what is what I thought was really cool is that he runs it just from uh, if you just have a guitar that you don't really play any 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 guitar and you just you know that's the sound of a guitar when it just starts up his western his main theme there starts from just if you put your finger over it and went and then this next chord and i was like you know i kind of like that that's kind of <laughs> you know because it was just so didn't do anything to the guitar, you know, no chords, no, 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 that just, just if you open it, it's a chord, it's an E minor, 11th, I mean, in this case, an A flat minor, 11th chord, but I just thought it was funny. So, uh, and kind of nice. And so, um, so the thing about that, they're both nice, and it, and, and, and the, the, the religious number, I mean, the, the, the funeral number, what, it, uh, free choir with funerals? Is that, yeah, that's on the wall. The guy gets shot and it says free choir with funerals or Yeah, exactly. Free music at your funeral. Free music. Well, oh, they have great funeral, funeral scenes though. I mean like the scene at the, the you know, the scene with the with the with the signs that yeah. then it was to get taken down here. Anyway, it's an interesting thing about music and this 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 thing really suffers from the most recent Hollywood uh, Hollywood attempt at, 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 at getting money from you know, other modes that you that T V couldn't work out, you know. Uh, you know, there's a story that about how Sam Fuller ended up working with Daryl Zanuck. He said that he uh, uh, that he was talking to the studio guys and everybody. He, uh, this is uh, I wouldn't call it apocryphal because he's the one who tells it, but that uh, he wanted to know what the studios did with the money they made, uh -huh. and they all talked in their own way about you know they invested it in offshore and all this other stuff. And he said that Daryl Zanuck was the only person who said, "Well, we make better movies." Huh. And so he's like, oh, you'll do everything for the movie. And so I like to think that, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe I'm an optimist where I think, you know, things like ancillary rights and product placement and, you know, embedding hit songs and other things in movies is an opportunity to make more money, but from a slightly different perspective because it's a high-risk industry that they're also trying to insure themselves against financial failure. Maybe a, a movie that's not that great or not doing that well can find its audience because of a song. It's just so funny in the case of this movie where the songs are not really the thing that are going to make this movie successful. And in an odd way, they really are... Um, Except some people did cover this song. You yeah. Know, where it so they might, that might have been the thing. It might have, you know, the but Sons of, course, of the Pioneers had a hit with that, huh? Yeah, well, and the Sons of the Pioneers is hilarious anyway. I mean, this is something that is one of the, it's, you know, it's, it's just like, the comedy of it. I mean, they're a Hollywood group anyway. They're a bunch of you know, a few guys who went out. To if Hollywood. I had to tell anybody who the Sons of the Pioneers were, I would just say they were the opening song in the Big Lebowski. Yeah, I mean, the Sons of the Pioneers, you, you know, just like you know, real the real the real hokum of of, of, of pop music. You can't tell. They did records with Roy Rogers, and actually, I like a lot of them. They were strong. So it's a, so killer. you're right. It really is kind of like uh, the the West really is a creation of Hollywood. Sure. And so, in some ways, Western music. Whether it's composed by Russians or performed by um, Greenhorns, is really uh, it's re it, 
it's, the West really only exists on the screen in that way. I mean, it goes through some things, though. You know, I mean, the, the, the thing is, at that point, I mean, I was talking about some stuff that is interesting about something like that because this, to, the, the the movie has a theme going on, which is, and they actually mention a key thing that you don't really see mentioned in a lot of westerns, which is that they talk about the fact that the reason that everything's changing and he's out of date is because the frontier is just closed. So this is the deal. The, the guns thing, you're right, it does have a wonderful thing about how guns are really past. It's not a thing, even though people are having trouble getting with them. And it would be wonderful if in reality it worked that way. So it's a funny schizophrenic type movie because, of course, Americans, I mean, I find that, you know, from my perspective, one of the features of Westerns is that is that they're a kind of, uh, you know, they're reflective of a kind of bizarre repression about what America was really really up to globally in the world at that point, you know, and really, you know, people just pretend that, you know, that, yeah, myth that, 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 that this mythology is going on to cover for the seriously bloody imperial wars that were going on at the time, the establishment of that, and the fact that, you know, we'll pretend that a real American uh, exists out on the prairie this way and does, isn't, you know, isn't off slaughtering people in the Philippines or whatever the hell we were up to in that period, you know. And the, that I figured out, but uh, it, but um, it, you know that's in there, and it's it, it's great that that's in there, and, and it's it, it is unusual that that's mentioned as the as the as the reasoning for why it's like a secret admission in the movie about why the whole situation in the movie should be ended. Yeah, I mean, there's it, the the disappearing America theme is is really one of the major themes of the western that you know uh, that. That it's already going when you think later on there were movies like The Wild Bunch and Butch Cassidy that emphasized the idea that the that the westerns took place at a time where the West was over. Like this movie takes place in the 1880s, I guess. So you think a lot of the expansion of America was done. So they say the frontier is over. There are no more towns to break and things like that. Um, but yeah, Fuller was a guy who made violent movies that were about violence. I. It might be overstating it that it's some sort of cautionary tale. Westerns were perfect for morality stories, but you have a guy who's, you know, of course, that, that classic hero archetype, the best guy with a gun you've ever seen who really isn't into them. You know, his brother saves his life and he says, you know, bad news, now you've killed a man. Right? Like even the most... Uh, Which is great because this is what it, where the brother does an incredible Fredo speech right before that. You know, it's just an amazing... I'm, like, not, I'm not a farmer. Yeah, <laughs> um, before we're done, I do have to say, if there was one reason I did pick this movie, it's Barbara Stanwyck. Um, Barbara Stanwyck was one of the greatest movie stars that Hollywood ever showcased. And... Uh, I still think that she's underrated. She uh, was, you know, born poor and struggled her whole life growing up, and she was in foster homes, and she was like a chorus girl at 16 or something, and she ended up being the highest paid woman in America. <laughs> in 1944, she was the wow. highest paid woman in the United States of America. Amazing. She uh, was nominated for an Academy Award several times, never really got one. She got an honorary one later. But you have to remember that Barbara Stanwyck was excellent in dramas, like Stella Dallas, right? She was a star of screwball comedies, like The Lady Eve, uh, or um, Ball of Fire, where she played a chorus girl named Sugar Puss O'Shea, that she was the queen of film noir 
in Double Indemnity, uh-huh. right? right? She w- right. was in what you call a thriller or a horror movie called Sorry, Wrong Number. And later on, she actually was also the queen of television. She had a, sh- uh-huh. a show called The Barbara Stanwyck Show, which was an anthology show where she played a different character every week. Uh, you know, and she won a Golden Globe or an Emmy for the Thornbirds. And so on top of that, to think that she was also insanely good in westerns. You know, this movie, she does all of her own stunts, including her riding, right? So she's doing her own horse riding. And even the scene where she gets dragged by a horse, uh-huh. uh, she did herself. Well, wow. After I think a stunt person would do it. And she's 50. She's 50 when she makes this movie. And she says, yes, you can drag me behind a horse for multiple takes. She was someone who was beloved uh, by all of her coworkers and crews and stuntman adored her. They made her an honorary stunt person Hall of Fame. And she was the only person I know of who worked with Frank Capra and Howard Hawks and Preston Sturges and Billy Wilder. Uh-huh. She just was the most versatile person. And so I kind of think that she started a movie like 40 Guns, uh, maybe because other people weren't game to do it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, although there is an insane story about uh, Samuel Fuller says that um, Marilyn Monroe had wanted to be in the and uh, he said, I can't put you in this movie. I think it was afterwards. He said, I couldn't put you in this movie because people would think it was a comedy. And she said, what do you mean? He said, this movie is called 40 Guns because it's about 40 pricks. It's about 40 dudes. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody would take you seriously as the sort of um, uh, madam of this like harem of guys. Yeah. So people would take the movie totally differently. Whereas I think... Um, this movie has a high camp level and I think if oh, you yeah, could imagine somebody like Joan Crawford who'd been in Johnny Guitar somebody else of, of her generation in this movie I think it probably would have the needle would have tilted over a little bit further because it's a very broad movie but I think that Stanwyck is the reason that it works and I think it's, well, it's, it, 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 she gives yeah. the movie a certain gravity that keeps it from hurtling into Blazing Saddles territory yeah yeah she does and it could fall there very quickly and I, but she does also, I think, what's his name? His acting is very good, too. Barry Sullivan. Uh, Barry Sullivan. Both of them are, yeah. are really good, because otherwise it is almost there. I mean, the, the, sh- the weird sheriff and the uh, it's on edge. Oh, the marshal with the vision problem? No, that was wonderful. They, they also had that wonderful shot, the shots out of the marshal. Actually, that's an aside. Oh, the I POV it. stuff that's out of focus? The out of focus stuff, which yeah, I thought was know, great. That just, was really great you, stuff. I, uh, I, I know, love a filmmaker who doesn't really know what they are and they aren't supposed to do and then they come up with ideas like that that yeah. other people weren't doing I mean Hitchcock had already very been simple doing idea. PO, he, there was the gun POV shot and Spellbound yeah. that I think that there were there's a lot of inspiration leading to this movie but he just did a lot that really it was just a very creatively directed movie in a way that westerns were an industry I love that they used to be called odors O-A-T-E-R-S because of presumably the uh Oat budget for the horses, uh, but you know westerns were cranked out. There were a lot of western B movies, and this is a movie that's just—it's not like the other westerns. And so mm. I think that's why I thought we'd have a more fun time talking about it, even its flaws, than I would either an acknowledged classic or the opposite, one of these sort of like B movies that doesn't have much stylistically. To well, there's—I mean, let's face it. Look, the thing about westerns is there's so many in the world. In our generation, it's already got so unpopular to really deal with westerns unless you're like some kind of niche loony. And uh, but they—they're great, and they're real. I think that's actually—I think there's a lot of unusual what you what you would think of as unusual westerns. 
and there's a lot of juice juice in it in the genre altogether all, all, all around even the fact that you know it's a genre that became self-conscious of itself and then started making movies about the making of, of them themselves and you know and then the cliches of the era and the misunderstandings that showed up from people interpreting the movies as real always a problem with american art which is people take the depiction to be more real than the real and then you know and then the cool thing about the western started responding to that particular feature of you know uh, so it's always interesting to watch them and plus they are just an incredible bucket of cultural information about the United States perceptions mythology the making of them which is always some sort of cross between you know you know various kinds of Eastern Europeans or Central Europeans it's just the whole thing fascinating there's a great documentary about John Ford that says that you know if you took John Ford's movies, and this is a guy who was directing from the 20s to the 60s, and you could place them in chronological order uh, by their setting. Yeah. So they were starting with Drums Along the Mohawk, which is an Eastern, right? right? takes place in the 18th century, uh-huh. and then going all the way through to the contemporary movies he was making about World War II. Uh, you, you know, you have the story of America. He made dozens and dozens of films in which he told the story of every different, you know, de- he, he made a film practically for every decade in the 19th century. Uh-huh. You know, so it does tell the story. Here's uh, a lot. I mean, they're, they're interesting. And any way you slice it, I mean, even, you know, Sherlock Holmes, as English as that is, the first book is, is essentially something that goes on the American West. I mean, it's, it was a big deal, you know, and, and the way that that comes out, you know, what, you know, what's involved right away is, all the schizophrenia, all the like, all the, the contradiction and everything is already, you know, was perceptible to people at the time. I mean, it's it's easy to see how things come out having, you know. So westerns are great that way. They're, it, they're, you know, it's they're all also up that way. They they were they were uh, westerns have so many familiar ingredients in terms of setting, plot, and character archetypes. Sure, that equipment. You, they become like a, <laughs> they become almost like a fruit bowl, like a test for uh, for a filmmaker that you know. You know, if I told you that Martin Scorsese was making a western, you'd get super excited because you say, "Well, what's his what's his take?" Yeah. Be? You know, when Jim Jarmusch did his western, uh, it was definitely something that was a combination of the things that he liked and the things that were native to the to the material. You know, Tarantino makes a western, and you think, "Oh, what other westerns is he going to synthesize?" Yeah. Right. If I told you Wes Anderson was making a western. Uh, you know, yeah. okay, you would know what lens he would use and where he would put the camera. <laughs> but other than that, okay, you know who was in it. Yeah, you know who was going to be in it, yeah. and you'd know which Beach Boys. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But uh, I'm just saying that there would be. We love to see people's take on the material. It's it really Absolutely. has proven to be. Yeah. Um, it's funny. I always tell my students that there are three primary colors of genre. You know, comedy, drama, and sort of thriller, horror. Or there was an old studio head who said, make them laugh, make them cry, or scare the shit out of them. But when you look at movies, you're like, well, wait a second, and then there's Western. <laughs> like, it kind of became, it's like, how is indigo its own color? It's like that. It's just, it takes up a lot of real estate and a lot of oxygen yeah. in film history, so there must be something to it. Absolutely. Um, all right, here's my last question to you. Um, somebody, I think, wrote something recently about how the seeming... Uh, unrelenting prevalence of the superhero movie in our contemporary culture every movie every studio picture is not only based on uh, 
intellectual property. I mean, this happens to be the week that the Emoji movie comes out, right? You think like everything's based on something else and Marvel has successfully created a cinematic universe in which they can tell dozens and dozens of stories based on their characters. They're, re they're rebooting and reinventing every one of their characters. And so DC is like, well, we gotta do a Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman 2 and we gotta make the Justice League and everybody who can do anything. So somebody said, well, the superhero movies are basically just our Westerns. Nobody can really make a new Western without it seeming to be a reference to a whole other world. Whereas superhero movies would really didn't have that foothold in cinema in the olden times now do sort of starting with Superman in like the late 70s now there's so many superhero movies that they no longer have to insist like why a superhero movie needs to exist we naturally assume people can like shoot laser beams out of their eyeballs and look good in tights mm -hmm. and we'll just watch those stories about like you know uh, dead parents and interstellar predicaments are just kind of natural to us mm -hmm. uh, do you <laughs> do you uh, could you imagine us ever picking a superhero movie I'm not counting Howard the Duck. Yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, I, I actually thought we should do one, definitely. I mean, we should do one that, that, that you know, they're so prevalent now. And 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 and, and, uh, and it's hard to tell whether to go with the newest one that's coming out or, or one that's been around for, for a long time. But I think it's, it's definitely central. I'm not sure that it's the same as a Western. It's the same as a Western in terms of the fact of how people see it and how they want to see it and how you kind of read certain kinds of repression and I think that I think there's essentially if we hopefully we will get to look at one and if we get to look at one then I think we'll go over it'll become really clear what the difference of uh, of focus is in terms of the in terms of the narrative of the development of uh, of a character what a character is supposed to become in a western and what and, and what kind of character is being fostered in a, in a superhero movie, which every, is two different. Every movie different. we've picked and the ones we will continue to pick are movies that are interesting artistically and probably because of the director. And uh, interesting directors are not native to the superhero genre. They're sort of looking, they're, with the exception well, no. of Christopher Nolan doing the Batman movies, yeah. there aren't really a lot of guys that you would expect to be doing We'll probably do a James Bond movie before we do a superhero movie. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's hard to tell. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, yeah, there, there, there's things that are related. I mean, superhero movies are related to Peter Jackson. But, you know, the, the, this whole thing of doing super uh, high tech CGI. You know, every 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 effect known to man thrown in thrown into the pot. You know, you start off from what is the latest gizmo we got to make a movie based around that you know and then then obviously it's got to be a superhero movie or either that or they're going to be a mars there's two kinds of movie well <laughs> i'm sure we'll come up with something yeah i think so great yeah all right good thanks a lot thank you